morning. I know that you've heard from uh, several different voices in the last few months, and I think that there's one thing that, that we've all had in common. It's a love for this church um, and, and a love for this community, and I am no different. Um, I considered McDowell Mountain Community Church my church home for 15 years. And so um, I love you, and I love this place, and it has been um, just a huge uh, transformative power in my life over the years. And so, um, again, just a joy. Uh, about nine months ago, my husband and I, Michael Fay, who you heard from, I think at the beginning of June, uh, we left here to plant a church in the central Phoenix area called Arcadia City Church. And so um, if you think about it, at 5 p.m. on Sunday, say a prayer for us as um, God leads us to reach into that community. Uh, well, this morning I had uh, Matt ask you a question about what sport um, is your favorite to watch in the Olympics. And although I got to talk to just a few of you, I would love to hear what you said. So right now it's okay to talk in church. Um, it's totally fine. Will you yell out, just at me, what are, what's your favorite sport to watch? Gymnastics. Gymnastics. Okay. Swimming. Do I hear swimming? Track. Okay. Figure skating. Maybe not in Rio this year, but in a couple years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Those are great answers. I love all that. Um, we are so excited in our family. We have four kids and um, oldest eight, youngest three, and all in that range. And they're pumped to watch the Olympics this year. Um, my favorite sport, and you might be a little bit surprised, is rowing. Um, none of you said rowing. Yeah, okay, okay. A few of you in the house for rowing. I love it. Maybe one. You and I, we can talk afterwards. That's cool. Um, I love rowing. And it has a very special place in my heart. And I want to tell you why that is. Um, I attended the University of San Diego in California for my college years. And I knew right away as I was applying to schools that I wanted to go out of state. I wanted to have an adventure. And it became very clear that USD, University of San Diego, was that school. And I had all these ideas. Oh, yeah, there I am. Okay. Yeah, oh, we'll get to that in just a minute. Um, you can take it down so they don't have to stare at me the whole time while I'm telling this story. Okay. Um, so when, I, when I, I got there, I had these ideas of, of what it was going to be like. I thought, I'm going to make friends really quickly. I'll fit in. I won't be homesick, right? No, I'm an only child. I'm really close to my parents, but I won't be homesick at all. Um, naive, yes, very naive about what it was going to be like. And the first weeks and months of my freshman year were really hard. Um, some of you have gone through this yourself or you've watched your kids transition to their freshman year of college, and it is not at all easy. In fact, I spent a lot of time on the phone with my mom where she would just kind of talk and I would listen and then I would try and talk, but it would sound like this. <laughs> I just, I don't know <laughs> what to do, right? This is what I sounded like. She could barely understood, understand a word I said. It was hard. And she, in all of her wisdom, said, you just need to find your community. Just find a place to plug in. She said, I, I heard that USD has a rowing team. And I think this would be a perfect fit for you. I've been athletic my whole life. I have just competitive genes to the core. And so this completely fit my DNA. And so I showed up in early September at the first meeting with a whole, with a whole bunch of other girls. And I kind of signed my life away. They have a physician look you up and down just to make sure that you're up to the task. And that was it. I was in. That's how they did rowing at USD. They didn't have enough money to recruit girls coming into freshman year, so you could just walk on and try out with little to no rowing experience. And so that's what I did. When I showed up that morning for the first meeting, there were 80 girls. Okay, 80. By May, 
the end of the season, there were 12 of us left. <laughs> you want to know why? Because we had to be up every single morning, Monday through Friday, at about 4.15 on the water by 5. We rode for two hours every morning um, on Saturday, 7 o'clock to 10 o'clock, so no partying for any of those girls. We were up in the morning, and we were rowing, and we were on the water. Two-a-days, hours in the weight room, long runs, hours on rowing machines. I ran so many stairs, I can't even fathom the amount of stairs I ran in those few years as a rower. But it was just an incredible experience, one of the greatest that I've had in my life to date. And I have such fond memories. Yeah, and so now we can show the picture. So yeah, that's me. I weighed about 15 pounds more, and it was like sheer muscle at the time. And that's me in the front of the boat right there. Yeah, in the front with the bandana. Yeah. Okay, that's good. <laughs> we don't need to look at it anymore. We're good. Um, full body spandex is what we wore. So we'll just take that down. Um, so I loved it. I loved it. And recently, um, a friend of mine said, Christy, you need to read this book called The Boys in the Boat. Has anyone read that? I, man, come on. We're friends. I love it. You're with me. Okay. This is a fantastic book, and it's a great book to read before the Olympics because it traces the story of these nine Americans um, who end up winning the gold medal in the 1936 Olympics, and they're underdogs, and somehow they pull it off. It's a great story. And as I read this book, there were just so many memories that kind of flooded into my mind, and I, I thought about all the lessons that I learned in my years as a rower about hard work and um, discipline and commitment and stick to if that's even a word. And, but then as I, as I thought about it too, I realized that there were some spiritual lessons that God was teaching me in that time. There were some spiritual truths. And so it's those things that I would love just to share with you this morning. Um, I hope that we'll be able to be kind of creative together because what I'd love to do is tell you a parable. We see Jesus using parables a lot when he taught. There's stories that help illustrate what the kingdom of God is like, what it looks like. And so this morning, I'm, I'm calling the title, um, The Kingdom of God is Like Eight Rowers in a Boat. And we're going to talk a little bit about crew and rowing and how that relates to us. So I hope you're up for it to, to come with me. Let's pray and invite God's spirit to move. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us here. It is a joy and an honor to gather in your name, to worship you, and to hear from you. And we pray, as always, that you would take center stage. This morning is not about us, but it's about you and what it is that you want to speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so I want to start by just reading you, and I'm going to do this a little bit throughout our time together, an excerpt um, from this book uh, by Daniel Brown. And um, he talks a little bit in the beginning of the book in the prologue about his first um, sit down with a man named Joe. And Joe is one of the men that rowed in this boat that won gold. And he says, we sat down and he began to talk about his childhood. He had a really um, tumultuous time as a kid, um, was abandoned. So it was very difficult. But then he, he writes this. He says, but it wasn't until he began to talk about his rowing career at the University of Washington that he started from time to time to cry. And he talks about the long hours and learning the art of rowing, and he talks about what it was like to, to march under Hitler's eyes in the Olympic Stadium, and then he says this, none of these recollections brought him to tears, though. It was when he tried to talk about the boat, in quotes, that his words began to falter and tears welled up in his bright eyes. First, I thought he meant the husky clipper, the racing shell in which he had rode his way to glory. Or did he mean his teammates, the improbable assemblage of young men who had pulled off one of rowing's greatest achievements? 
Finally, watching Joe struggle for composure over and over, I realized that the boat was something more than just a shell or its crew. To Joe, it encompassed but transcended both. It was something mysterious and almost beyond definition. It was a shared experience, a singular thing that had unfolded in a golden sliver of time long ago when nine good-hearted young men strove together, pulled together as one, gave everything they had for one another, bound together forever by pride and respect and love. Joe was crying, at least in part, for the loss of that vanished moment, but much more, I think, for the sheer beauty of it. I love that about the, the sport of rowing. There is no room for arrogance or pride. There's no room for showboating or stars. It's about the commitment of each and every individual setting aside individual glory and saying, I'm in it for, for the glory of this boat, of being united as one, of rowing together as one, of love and respect. There's no sport like it. I can remember mornings where we would row terribly, and there were a lot of them in the beginning. And we'd be soaked in the water from the San Diego Bay, and then there would be mornings that we'd row okay, and some good, some even great. But there would be mornings where we would find it, whatever it is, and we would row together with one heart and one mind, and the boat would lift out of the water, and it almost felt like you were flying. There's nothing like it. Oneness. And this kind of oneness is exactly what Jesus prays for every single one of us here. Did you know that Jesus prayed for you and that he prayed for me while he was on earth? Those of us gathered here, he prayed for us. And I want to read to you what he prayed for us. For all the things he could have prayed, this is, this is what he prayed. This is John chapter 17, verse 20. And I believe it will come up on the screen so that you can follow along. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. He's just been praying for his disciples. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So that's us. We're modern day disciples. And these are Jesus's words for us. He says that they may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. And get this, so the world may believe that you sent me. So the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus prays for oneness. I want to share this quote with you um, from the book as well. It says this, it is a great art rowing. It's the finest art there is. It's a symphony of motion. And when you're rowing well, why it's nearing perfection. And when you're nearing perfection, you're touching the divine. You're touching the divine. It touches the you of yous, which is your soul. You see, when we, as the body of believers, become one, just as Jesus prayed that we would, we touch the divine. There's something otherworldly about it. We bring the kingdom of God, which is in heaven here on earth, and others get to glimpse what it's like, what our God is like this oneness is what Jesus wants for us. It touches the divine. And so as we move throughout the morning, I want to talk about a few factors that I believe need to be in place if we're going to seek after this oneness that Jesus so prayed for us so many years ago. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about these factors. I'm going to talk about what it's like in a boat. So there's factors that, that contribute to oneness and a bow, but then there's also these factors that contribute to us being one as the body of Christ, and you'll see that the two overlap. So we're going to begin with factor one, and I'm calling this uh, mastering the basics. 
And I hope that you'll learn a little bit about rowing as we go as well. And you'll enjoy watching the sport uh, in just 19 days. And so in, in rowing, the basic um, is the stroke. And we spent months just trying to master the mechanics of the stroke. You see, every person in the boat has to have this down. They have to understand the stroke in order for there to be even hope of oneness. So I want to show you, and this will help you. So next time you go to the gym and you look at that little machine, now you'll know how to do it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to demonstrate for you, okay? Can you guys see me? Kind of? Um, so I'm going to start at kind of this part of the stroke right here. Now, I was a starboard rower, so my oar went this way off the boat. And so we began this way, holding the oar like this, facing backwards like this, and we drop it in the water. And you have to have your shoulders tilted a little bit to the direction of the boat in which your oar is going. So I tilted my shoulders to the left as to get as far around as you possibly could. You want to lengthen your stroke as much as possible. So we reach over. Now, a lot of people think it's mostly arms and shoulders, and it is, but it's a lot legs too, because the very first thing that you do is you drive hard with your legs. So we'd push backwards on a seat that moved, our feet were in, and we'd drive backwards with our legs. And then we'd pull this oar back, and so we'd be kind of like this with our back sort of tilted. Then you want to pull in, and then as quickly as you pulled in, you push back out and you roll back up and you start all over again. And your back has to be at the right angle and your hands have to be where they need to be. And every single person in the boat has to do that over and over and over again in order to have any hope that you might row together. It's the mechanics. It's the mechanics, it's the basics. I want to assert that in the body of Christ, there are some basics that we have to master if we have any hope of becoming one as Jesus prayed that we would. And we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as we kind of talk about these different factors. So you can go there if you have your Bibles uh, with you. And, and again, sometimes the, the key verses will come up on the screen. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he's talking about this very thing, this oneness that he hopes that, that they can achieve in their community. And he begins his whole conversation about this by saying, listen, I know that before before you listen to the world, you listen to the world and its gods and its idols, and you let it tell you how to live your life. You let it boss you around. He says, but now, but now you who've begun to follow Jesus, you have to listen to him. Paul uses this phraseology. He says, you must say, Jesus is Lord. So before you let the world tell you how to live, by the way, the world doesn't know the first thing about living, but you let it tell you how to live. But now, that you follow Jesus. Jesus must be your Lord. You must surrender to him. You must let him call the shots. You must relinquish control. You must surrender. This is the beginning because every single one of us in the body of Christ must start there, must start by saying, yes, Jesus, I trust you. I want you to lead. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to relinquish control of my own life into your hands. That's where it starts. If we have any hope at all of becoming one, as Jesus prayed that we would, then each and every one of us must say, yes, Jesus, you are my Lord. So we have to master the basics, right? Then there's another factor at work, second factor. And I'm calling this one, sit in your seat. Um, in, a, in a boat... In a shell, there are eight seats, and there is one place at the front or the back, depending on how you're looking at it, for the coxswain. 
And each person, each seat has a role to play, and they must play it to perfection if the boat is going to row as one. So there's a coxswain. They're in the front. They're, the, they're a smaller individual, and they are the cheerleader. They know every single rower in their boat. They know exactly what they need to hear and when they need to hear it. They understand what motivates a rower so that when you're exhausted at the end of the race and you think you have nothing left, that coxswain knows exactly what to say so that you can cross the finish line. They're the ones that steer the boat. They see the competitive field so they know which boat is ahead or which behind. They're very important, very important, even though they never take stroke. Okay? Then there's seats one and two, which are in the stern part of the boat. That's where I sat. So in that picture, you saw me kind of at the front there. I sat in a stroke seat. So it was my job to determine the rate and the rhythm. So in, in crew, the speed is determined by strokes per minute. And so the coxswain would say 26, and I would know exactly that I need to row 26 per minute, and my body would immediately be able to tell what kind of stroke rate I needed to have, and it would go there immediately. And that's what I was good at. And so I sat in the front. Now, the, then there's the middle four seats, and this is where you put your strength. So these are the girls that outweighed me probably by 40, 50, 60 pounds. They had probably about six inches on me. These were big girls. And they knew how to pull. They were strong. And that's the middle, that's your strength. And then there's the back two seats. And there, it's all about balance there. You see, they see the whole boat in front of them and all the rowers, they know if it's tilting one way or the other, they know how to adjust to make the boat balanced. And every single person has to do their role to perfection if you want to achieve that oneness. And it's the coach's job, and it's a complicated job, to understand their rowers and to know, I need to put Christy in the front because that's her, that's her talent, that's her ability. I need to put this person in the middle because they're going to be at my strong, my strength. It's the coach's role. Isn't it just like this in the body of Christ? I mean, Paul talks about this. He says this in verse 4. He says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. So these, all these gifts and abilities that God has given to each and every one of us individually, uniquely to suit us. It says, now to each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good. We are given gifts and abilities as to benefit the whole. Just like I, I had to sit in the stroke seat and my abilities there benefited the boat. When we understand how God has formed us and shaped us and made us, then we can contribute and it can, and can be positive for the entire whole of the body of Christ. And we too have a coach, right, who knows exactly where we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to be doing. This is what verse 18 says. But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. You see that we all have a seat to sit in, but we got to figure out what that seat is and we got to sit in it. And so I want to challenge you if you're here this morning and you're just, you're not sure. You don't really know. I don't know how God has uniquely gifted me. I'm not really sure. Then the very first thing that you have to do is ask God. If he's the one that knows where you fit, then I would say, talk to him first. Say, God, where, what's, what's my seat number? What's my part? Where am I supposed to be? And then ask your friends, ask people that know you. Say, what do you think that I'm good at? What do you see in me? There's lots of resources, but we have to figure out our part in the whole if we want to move towards, again, the oneness that Jesus prays for us. 
And the oneness is important. Why? Because it touches the divine. Because the world will know God if we can be one with one another. So this is a critical conversation, isn't it? So the first factor, Jesus is Lord. The second one, find, find your seat. Master the basics and find your seats. And then, and then the final factor, the third factor, is stay in your seat. Stay there. Don't try and move. Just sit in it. Uh, I want to read to you because this is so beautifully written. I will never even come close. But this is, this is the author talking about this idea of different parts working together. And this is, this is what he says. The psychology is complex. He's talking about rowing. Even as rowers must assume their often fierce sense of independence and self-reliance, at the same time, they must hold true to their individuality, their unique capabilities as oarsmen or oarswomen, for that matter, as human beings. Even if they could, few rowing coaches would simply clone their biggest, strongest, smartest, and most capable rowers. Isn't that interesting? You'd think that they would, but they don't. Crew races are not won by clones. They are won by crews. And great crews are carefully balanced blends of both physical abilities and personality types. In physical terms, for in instance, one rower's arms might be longer than another's, but the latter might have a stronger back than the former. Neither is necessarily a better or more valuable oarsman than the other. Both the long arms and the strong back are assets in the boat. And we read this and we think, yes. But how often do we in the church, in the body of Christ, do we say, I wish I had longer arms. I wish I had that gift. Why, why did you make me this way, God? Why can't I sit in a different seat? I mean, I'm, I'm 120 pounds. I was 135 when I rode. I'm five foot four, three and, and three quarters. It's an important three quarters. <laughs> right? But I can't sit in the middle of the boat. That would be a nightmare. That would be stupidity. On the coach's part, to put me in the middle, I am not the strongest. I was strong, mind you. Michael calls me the dark days of our relationship because he could get on my back and I could squat him. That's how strong I was. I was strong. But I'm never going to be like that girl that sits in the middle. But you know what I'm good at? I'm good at keeping the rate. I have really good rhythm. So I got to sit in my seat. We have to quit wishing that we were somebody else with somebody else's gifts. No. God made you you for a reason. So sit in your seat and don't try and move. We have a habit in the church, and it's unfortunate, of honoring certain gifts above others. And so that causes us to feel like, oh, I wish I had the gift of evangelism. Or I wish I had the gift of teaching. Let me just tell you, I'm a professional talker. That's all I do. There's nothing much to it. It's, it's nothing great about it. Trust me. Right? No, everything is the same, and we all must find our seat. And we must sit in it. I love, he goes on here. And it's, first, it's a physical conversation, but then he goes into this. And capitalizing on diversity is perhaps even more important when it comes to the character of the oarsman. A crew composed entirely of eight amped-up, overly aggressive oarsmen will often degenerate into a dysfunctional brawl in a boat or exhaust itself in the first leg of a long race. Similarly, a boatload of quiet but strong introverts may never find the common core of fire resolve that causes the boat to explode past its competitors when all seems lost. Good crews are a good blend of personalities. Listen to this. Someone to lead the charge, someone to hold something in reserve, someone to pick a fight, someone to make peace. 
someone to think things through, and someone to charge ahead without even thinking. You might think, oh, Christy, my personality, I just don't know, I'm so quiet, I just, I don't know. No, that's good. That's a good thing, we need to. You might think, I'm just really strong, and I'm really bossy, I'm bossy, it's okay. It's a good thing, the body of Christ needs you. Not just your gifting, but your unique personality and the lens by which you see the world, you are important. You are important. Find your seat and sit in it. I love what Paul says. This is in the message translation. I want you to think about how all this makes you more significant, not less. A body just isn't a single part blown up into something huge, right? What would we do with a large nose or a large ear out of proportion? No, no, right? It's all the different but similar parts arranged and functioning together. He says, I want you to think about how this keeps your significance from getting blown up into self-importance. For no matter how significant you are, it is only because of what you are a part of. Isn't that a good word right there? No matter how significant you are, it is only because of what you are a part of. Together, together, oneness, oneness. We can change the world. You know why Jesus prayed this for us when he could have prayed anything else? Anything else. He prays that we would be one as he is one with the Father because the world will know him because of that. I don't know about you, but these last months have sickened me. Can you fathom the amount of of life that's been lost just to tragedy and, and terrorism and evil? It's been awful to watch. The world now more than ever needs to know what it looks like to be diverse, to disagree about things, to maybe not be in the same political party, to have different theological views, to come from different dominations, but to say, no, together, together we are better. Together we are better. And we need everybody. We need everybody. We need everybody's gifts, giving all that they have, sitting in their seat and staying there so that the world will know, so that we can bring the divine here, so the kingdom of God can come as he- on heaven as it is in- on earth. We need that. We need that. We need that. This is an exciting time in this church. As Cameron said, Matt and Robin Anderson are coming next week. These are people that I love, that have mentored Michael and I. They are dear friends. They are gifted leaders. But I tell you what, if they were here this morning, they would agree with me in in saying that it's not about them. Because it's not about any one leader. This church isn't dependent on anyone's capacity or leadership giftings. No, this church is about you guys. It's about each and every one of us being sold out of saying Jesus is Lord, sitting in our seat and staying there. We're going to take communion, which I think is a very fitting way to close. See, Jesus did a lot of work, a lot of work, and it cost him his life so that we could be one with him and with each other. And so the ushers are going to um, pass the elements. Matt's going to come, and he's going to lead us in a closing song. And we're going to take these elements And before we do that, I just want to remind you, just this one last thing. I want you to wrestle with this this morning. Is Jesus your Lord? Have you mastered the basics? Have you put him in charge of your life? Are you letting him lead you? Have you bended your knee? Have you surrendered? Because if you haven't, that's where it starts. We must start there. Do you know how God has gifted you uniquely? He has. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows exactly who he created you to be. Would you 
ask him to reveal that to you? Would you find your seat? Would you sit in it? Would you sit in it because we need to? No, no gifts are better than any other. They're equal in God's eyes and all important. We are only significant because of what we are a part of. Jesus, on the night that he's betrayed, is sitting around with his disciples and he takes the bread and he breaks it. He says, this is my body. Pour it out for you. Takes the cup, he drinks it and passes it. This is my blood poured out for you. Jesus paid a high price so that we might may be one. And the world needs us. The world needs us now more than ever. Let's pray and we'll take the elements. We practice open communion. So if you are a follower of Jesus, we welcome you to participate. Jesus, we thank you that so many years ago you thought of us gathered in this room on July 17th. You knew we needed the prayer. May we be one. As you and the Father are one, may we be one so that the world will know. Jesus, the world needs you right now. It needs you. So much division, so much hate, so much anger, so many things that seek to divide us. The world needs to know that we can be one they need you. So Jesus, give us the strength to submit our lives to you, to surrender to you. Give us the strength to find our seat and to sit in it, to stay in it. We want to be one. We honor and we celebrate what you've done for us, your body broken on the cross, your blood poured out, that we might be one. We're so grateful. We're so grateful for what you've done for us. Make us one. Make us one. In Jesus' name, amen.